Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sake Revolution. This is America's first sake podcast. I'm your host, John Puma from the Sake Notes, also an administrator over at that Internet Sake Discord, as well as the accompanying subreddit, r slash sake over at Reddit. I'm our resident sake nerd. And I am your host, Timothy Sullivan. I am a sake samurai. I'm a sake educator and also the founder of the Urban Sake website. And every week, John and I will be tasting and chatting about all things sake and doing our best to make it fun and easy to understand. That is right, Tim. Uh, now, this is the latest in our series on Shubo. Yes, right? John. You know, pretty soon we're going to need to have a series about all of our series. But <laughs> it's true. This is our Shubo series. Again, that's the fermentation starter. And if you want to catch up on the series, the last three episodes have taken us on a journey through fermentation starter land. And this one is the most unique and most rarefied. Mm-hmm. And, and what is that? Today we're talking about a very unusual type of fermentation starter called Bodai Moto. Have you heard of this, John? I have heard of Bodai Moto, Tim, but I don't know, I don't know a lot about mm. Bodai Moto. Uh, how much do you know about Bodai Moto? Well, you know, I'm not an expert either, but I think it's time we phone a friend. <laughs> can you still make can you still make who wants to be a millionaire uh, references in 2021? I'm I'm going for it. We're going right, to phone a friend. Out. We're going to find out if that I know a guy. I know, you know a, guy. a guy. All right. That's timeless. I like that. Let me introduce our friend, Jamie Graves. He is the Japan Portfolio Manager at Skernik Wines, and he is a super knowledgeable guy about sake, and he has actually been to the spot where Bodai Moto originated. So I don't know anyone within a thousand mile radius who could help us more with this Bodai Moto situation. So Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited. I've listened to a bunch of these and excited to be on. <laughs> Waiting with bated breath till we talked about Bodai Moto. Here it is. <laughs> this is your moment, Jamie. <laughs> this is it. Time to shine. So to get started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey into becoming a sake professional? How did that evolve? Yeah. Right out of college, I ended up getting an English teaching job in Japan. I just kind of wanted to live abroad. Found after a year there that I was a little bit more interested in Japanese food and drink than I was in teaching Japanese middle school children, very basic <laughs> English. Uh, so I, I stuck around in Japan for a couple more years, was working in uh, Japanese food, trying to learn as much as I could about uh, various kinds of Japanese cuisine. Um, knew a little bit about sake, but not much. And then when I moved back to New York, I was lucky enough to work in some great Japanese restaurants uh, here in New York City. And that was when sort of my, uh, I guess you could say my sake journey really began just because you know, most people go out to a Japanese uh, meal, dinner, and even if you have good wine, they'll ask for sake. And I realized I didn't have much information and not many people around me had much information. Tim, you were actually one of the first sake experts that I, I met at all. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, you can do this. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of it was then sort of taking what courses I could and teaching myself 
uh, as much as I could. I, I, you know, got a bit of the language from having lived there for a couple of years. So I was lucky enough to be able to speak to a lot of brewers in their own language. So both at trade shows here in New York was trying to talk to as many people as possible and get information. And then the few times, you know, I was very busy working in restaurants, not much time off, but the few times I did get, get a chance to go back to Japan, I would try to visit sake breweries on my own time, uh, meet people, learn as much as I could. And then a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough, this company, Skernick Wines, uh, it's a great family owned wine company that specializes in kind of small family owned wineries generally. I heard they were looking to get into Japan and sake and I thought, hey, that's somewhere I want to be. So I kind of forced my way in the door and then um, here we are. That was almost four years ago now, which is crazy to think about. Wow. God, has it been that long? You know, 2020 didn't really count as a year. That, we just skipped that one. <laughs> well, excellent, excellent. Let's explain first what Moto is, and that's, as I mentioned at the very beginning, a fermentation starter. And this is where the rice, the water, yeast, and koji all come together for the first time. So, Jamie, wouldn't you say that Bodai Moto is the kind of the original or one of the oldest ways of making this fermentation starter that exists? I believe it's the first, actually. I believe it's the first time they did something like this. And um, kind of a useful analogy that I've picked up, not just for Bodai Moto, but for all these starters, is with 2020, sort of the idea of sourdough and making sourdough became much more familiar to a lot mm. of people. And this is, you know, we say starter, it's basically serves the exact same function as a sourdough starter. It's your sort of like small, intense, very microbe heavy, small batch. And then you build up from that. You can like add more ingredients and build up from that. And it'll, um, it's sort of like a strong little engine of activity going on in there. And then the more you feed it, you can kind of build up to a larger fermentation starters, whether that's sourdough bread or in our case, talking about sake. Yeah. You want to make a really healthy colony of microbes. So when you move on to the main fermentation, you've got this, you know, really healthy, vibrant group of microbes that are going to be very viable when you move them to, to the main fermentation. That's really in, in, I think in a nutshell, that's the role of this starter step. Mm -hmm. So what is unique about Bodai Moto? So from what I understand, I mean, yeah, this is the first time they figured out kind of how to do this, to build this mm -hmm. up. And it's, uh, it's compared to the other styles, you're basically just letting, from what I understand, cooked rice, raw rice, uncooked rice sit in water in small tanks. And then you just kind of step back and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like a soaking of the rice in water mm -hmm. and microbes are going to fall in there. Yeah. Microbes are going to fall in there and it's, it's just much less um, precise than some of the other methods. Uh, it's mm -hmm. more kind of prone to variation or even, you know, going bad. So from what I understand when this is developed, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the, the, the monks and the its connection with Buddhism and all that stuff. Um, but it's it, basically from what I understand originally, you would make a bunch of these and hope that you could get a couple that worked out of it. <laughs> some, some might just might not work. And then some, some would be like, Oh, we got a nice kind of acidic result from this. We have to hmm. make sure everyone understands that we're talking about hundreds of years ago, correct, that this was developed. They did, had no understanding of microbiology. So is that right? Yeah. Dates, I, I think, are fairly loose. I mean, the, the sake, the specific sake we're going to talk about today, they're, they're in the area where this was developed. And when I met with them, the guy who makes this sake will reference like specific journals of monks back like five, 600 years ago. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's still pretty unclear exactly when this started, but sometime in like the 1500s, 1600s or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's a connection to a Buddhist temple and the creation of a fermentation starter method way back mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. What, what do we know about that? So this is, I think, um, one of the most kind of dramatic things about this method specifically. And and when I got to visit the temple where apparently not just uh, this method was developed, but also to get a little geeky and technical, there's a thing called Sandan Shkomi, which is the idea of gradually building up your sake to make it really strong. That was also developed at this temple. They think maybe pasteurizing sake was developed here. And there's all oh, wow. kinds of notes around these things at this one specific temple called Shoryakuji in Nara. And it's not a, today it's not really a major temple. So it's very interesting when I was taken there by this sake maker, he wanted to take me to literally where the tank was being held in the, in the temple, where there was a literally a Buddhist priest who was watching over this tank, kind of uh, going through the whole starter making process. And as we drove in, you're driving up into the woods in these mountains outside of the central Nara area where the cities are and whatnot. And as we were driving up, the sake maker was pointing out sort of the the quality of the hills uh, that have the trees on them. And he's like, do you notice anything about them? And I'm like, they look fairly even. And he's like, this was all terraformed. He's like, this all used to be part of the temple complex. Hmm. Oh, wow. When you drive in there, there's like, I think maybe three or four small buildings left in this this temple complex. And there's literally two priests left. There's a, the current priest and his son. It's like a hereditary thing often. You'll take over for your father. Literally two people. And that's the entire staff of this Buddhist temple. It used to be something like 2,000 priests. And oh it was God. basically like a university. Buddhism had a lot of ties to China. A lot of priests would go to China to learn about Buddhism, but then also it was, you know, they were kind of the scholars of their day. So they were picking up all kinds of latest developments and information and all kinds of things, including fermentation. Um, And it was very much kind of a knowledge center and functioned kind of like a university with all kinds of different specialized people and people researching things. And that's when they were developing uh, better and better sake uh, as many of the things they were researching. Unfortunately, the priests were a little bit too powerful for their own good. And they kind of got on the wrong side of a bunch of different uh, samurai and they, because they had their own sort of source of power. So just by all sorts of things over the years, taxes, not even direct fighting or violence necessarily, but the, the samurai were so threatened by this base of power, they would create all sorts of kind of laws and things to basically reduce the power of these temples. So it Mm. literally shrunk from like a 2000 person, essentially a university down to what is now just two people uh, kind of holding the flame of this little Mm. organization. It's it's pretty dramatic. And I never would have noticed that unless they'd pointed out to me that all of the lands around there had been developed and now they're, they're kind of overgrown with forest. But if you look at the hills, they're actually even, then you could build buildings on them again. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Nara is the oldest part. Of Japan. I mean, oldest is but oldest part of kind of the, you know, imperial Japanese civilization mm-hmm. where the first emperor uh, was based in like the 700s, the first capital. And there's it's a pretty dramatic place to visit. The highest building in the entire prefecture, in the entire area is a five story pagoda. There's nothing <laughs> higher than that. And that's literally it's some of the oldest buildings are some of the biggest. And that still remains the case today. There's a, very much a presence of history there that you feel that all over Japan, but I think specifically there. This Bodai Moto temple sounds like the original Sake University. I love it. I, this is I'm on my bucket list now for sure. <laughs> I have to go there. It does sound like a good trip to make. So 
You, you mentioned that what they're doing here is taking the rice and putting it in water. They're kind of letting literally nature take its course with mm-hmm. that. Now, is it, has that t- is that technique, is that literally what they're still doing now when they do this? Or have they found ways to guide that process? Uh, or is it they're still just letting it go? I honestly don't know enough to know if specific ways they're guiding it. I don't think it's quite as haphazard mm-hmm. as it used to be. I mean, you know, they understand microbiology. I mean, it was hilarious when I visited because I went with two Nara sake makers and then we started talking to the priest and they started talking very deep, geeky fermentation stuff that you normally only hear in sake breweries. And we were in a Buddhist temple and one of them at one point turned to me, they're like, you ever heard anything like this, you know, outside of a sake brewery? I'm like, certainly not. And, you know, the priest was dressed there in his robes. It was a pretty funny experience. So yeah, in terms of how are they guiding it. I think there's more understanding about temperature and ideal environments, but really the idea of making it at this temple is they know that, you know, a lot of these starters, these, these Shubo, I know that some of the more traditional ones like Kimoto and Yamahai, I've talked to some brewers and they say they can't, some breweries say we can't make Yamahai. Like we just don't have a good microbial balance. And anytime we try to make it, it doesn't really work around here. And then I've heard other people say, oh, we've got a very good for whatever reason, the conditions are quite good here in terms of temperature and the microbes that live around here. So yeah, for whatever reason, at that temple, they they still have kind of a good, healthy climate to make a sake starter in. Yeah. So when the microbes begin to develop in that water-rice mixture, mm-hmm. what they're aiming for is the development of lactic acid, right? That creates a good, clean high acid environment, which the sake yeast is going to love when it goes in. So this is a way to develop that, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, that's kind of the unique thing here. And this is what you're getting out of, you know, really all of these different starter methods is getting that sort of clean acidic water that develops uh, naturally from lactic acid uh, bacteria. It's what gives sake its, you know, its balance. It's, It's little kind of sour or acidic kind of balance. It's snap at the end. And this is the first time they literally make it for that acidic water like that's the like they're looking to basically well to get that water out of it and then use that as the kind of base for for building up from there so that's almost like having a i'm sure you know as tim as you know having a nice clean slate having a nice blank canvas that's very easy for yeast and sake to kind of do its thing on as opposed to if you didn't have that it would be kind of already a somewhat muddied canvas you gotta the yeast has to work harder around these things yeah yeah it's a battlefield (laughs) (laughs) micro battlefield in there yeah (laughs) so when you visited this temple Mm -hmm. were they currently brewing a batch of the bodai moto when you visited uh they were yeah um so it's it's a single tank that gets made every year so maybe i'll talk a little bit about the bodai moto project so this is something it was started in 1996 i know that we said this dates back all the way back to the the 1500s <laughs> but you know when they they found methods that were a little bit more consistent or a little bit easier the way trends in sake tastes were going people decided that these other methods they they kind of liked the way those taste a little bit better but this sort of fell out of uh, favor and i don't think really anybody was doing this it was it was much harder it was less consistent results so it was specifically this one brewery, Yucho Shuzo, and we're going to try their Bodaimoto expression today. They're a local Nara brewery, and they're very historically minded. The current uh, president, he's the 13th generation of his family to run the brewery. They've been around since 1719. And his father specifically started this project. His father was really into history and the history of sake. And when I visited and met with uh, Yamamoto-san, his son, 
we literally sat down and talked about the history of sake for two hours before we did anything else. Like he started pulling books off of shelves and um, talking about, you know, monks, things like this. So it was really his, his father knowing the history of sake and knowing how it had been made in Nara. He thought, wouldn't this be an interesting kind of historical thing? So it's not the main way that they make their sake. There's a lot of other great sake they make under the brand Kaze no Mori, which is much more bright and clean and kind of modern in style. Really delicious one. And the Bodaimoto couldn't be more different. It's very like thick and acidic and kind of got a lot of great weight to it. So as Yamamoto-san's father said, hey, let's kind of bring this back. Let's work with the monks. Let's work with the local temple. It'd be kind of an interesting project. And they roped together, I think it was 19 other local Nara breweries that everybody... Wow. 19. Uh, yep. So every, uh, so it was 20 in total. I think to begin with 20 in total, I think it's dwindled about 12 because it's a little bit difficult to make these things. Mm. So the idea is, you know, the, they make the starter at the temple and then that gets divided up and sent to all of these different uh, breweries and everybody gets to make their own expression of Bodaimoto how they want to. Um, so some people make very non-traditional Bodaimoto that are much more kind of like lighter and like still have a lot of weight and acid, but are more modern in style. Whereas... Uh, these guys, Yucho Shuzo, they really wanted to make a very old school, classic, kind of big, rich, sweet uh, Bodaimoto overall. So that's kind of the the origins of the Bodaimoto project. Wow, that's so interesting. It's like living history. It's yeah. so fascinating. Yeah. And they take they take that Bodaimoto water starter and bring it back to their brewery and they pitch the yeast at their brewery and yes. begin the fermentation there. Wow, mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Very cool. Um, yeah, I think they wanted it to be like not just one brewery, but they wanted to make it kind of a Nara thing, like promote Nara sake uh, overall, make something kind of unique to the area. I love it when uh, when groups of breweries get together and do projects like that. It's always it's always fun and brings a little bit of uniqueness, and it always puts a smile on my face. I'm kind of curious. I want I want to taste this. I want to know what this is all about. So luckily, we have the uh, Takacho Regal Hawk Bodaimoto. Judmai Muroka Genshu, mm-hmm. which is a part of that project. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, was made at that at the very brewery that you mentioned kind of got this whole this whole thing started. Yeah. Um, from what I understand, they were really the um, the people that spearheaded the whole thing and kind of roped in a bunch of other local Nara breweries to everybody make their own different um, expression of Bodemoto. Yeah, so I'm just going to read off the stats for this sake that we're tasting today. As John mentioned, it's Takacho Regal Hawk, Junmai Muroka Genshu. It uses the Hino Hikari rice, polished to 70% remaining, acidity plus three, alcohol is 17%, mm-hmm. and probably most noteworthy for us, the SMV, or that measurement of density of the sake, which gives us a sense of how sweet or dry it may taste, this comes in at around minus 25, which gives me a little signal this might be a touch on the sweet side. So those are, wow. the, yeah, <laughs> those, those are the stats for this sake. And uh, John, what do you say? Let's get this open and into the glass. And, those uh, are the stats for the sake. That might be a record for the show. I, yeah. I, I have a feeling. I'm not sure. But it, if, it's not the, if it's not the lowest SMV we've ever had, it's definitely a contender. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, Japan used to like their sake sweet. Um, This is kind of an interesting thing I've learned more and more about is the Japanese diet used to be very kind of salty and funky. Um, A lot of preserved foods, a lot of like pickled things of various kind, pickled fish, pickled vegetables, um, also uh, funky fermented stuff. And there's a lot of 
Japanese foods that I, I had. I remember the first time I had them, I was like, why would anybody eat this? Like if you guys have ever had shiokara, shiokara I now love, but it's it's a fermented um, squid parts and it's it's kind of like very intensely salty and funky. And I was like, what, you know, what is this as a dish? It only makes sense to me if you have it with some sake next to it because the sake kind of um, tempers all those extremely funky things. So if you imagine that that's a big part of your diet, these like very salty or very vinegary and like funky fermented flavors, having a sweet sake to kind of contrast it with really makes a, a lot of sense. Whereas now so much of the Japanese diet is much more, you know, they've got Wagyu beef, they've got, you know, all kinds of fatty rich foods. And so you, you generally would maybe want a drier sake to go with that. So that's kind of the the reason that it's a very old school style of sake and it is very sweet. It's not a coincidence. Hmm. Hmm. So, so Tim, what is the first thing that you're noticing when you pour this? Well, holding up the glass, I noticed there's a very distinct color cast to this and almost a little bit of haze to it as well. Yeah, like it's this is not, not clear. <laughs> not clear. It's not it's not like a nigori, it's not cloudy, but there there's a, a cast of color and a, a haze to it. So let's give it a smell. Hmm. Very unique aroma. There's a lot going on here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very deep, complex. The first thing that I smell is kind of like a hay aroma. Hmm. Like almost like barnyard like it smells like <laughs> it smells like a little bit of hay john what do you what do you think well i honestly i haven't been in a barnyard in, in such a long time that i can't i can't go with you on that journey um but it's so it's like adjacent to that like sweet like almost caramel mm, yes, nose yes. something i have a hard mm. time identifying yeah i that totally makes sense to me like a little bit of a, a caramel sauce mm -hmm. that that yeah. uh that depth of caramelized sugar, that, that little bit of uh, deep caramel flavor is definitely there on the nose. Yeah. And, and honestly, it comes, it's like, it's almost like a lighter interpretation of that caramel, which mm. I, for me, like that sort of thing is like, uh, it comes across a little, um, a little hot and heavy to me. And this comes, the, the nose on this comes across kind of like a little bit lighter, a little bit sweeter. Are you getting any fruit in the nose at all or? Definitely. But no. I would say like almost like poached pears or something like that. Mm. Like a little bit mm. of a, a deep candied pear aroma is something that comes across for me. Mm -hmm. What what do uh, other tasters usually say, Jamie, when they when they smell this? I mean, there are, you know, the classic uh, sake tasting notes of, and I think maybe I'm conflating a little bit the the, the flavor that you taste uh, versus the aromas that you get, but the kind of, um, you know, fresh apple, that kind of Japanese apple that's more sweet than the very like tart American apples, a bit of those kind of classic tasting notes in there. But I always think of this as, it's funny, I'm so used to this that I almost skip past all of those initial impressions you guys are getting of hay and things like that. And mm. I just think of how intensely like fruity it is to me. And maybe by intensely fruity, mm. I'm thinking of that candied pear thing you're talking about where it's like, mm. like concentrated mm. fruit. Well, when we talk about extremely fruity on this show, we usually mean like uh ginjo ka, you know, like yeah. the tropical fruits right. that are mm. very fresh and juicy. And that's not really what this is. This has kind of a totally. candied, richer, mm -hmm. more funky aspect to it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. It's like when you when you said fruit, I was like, I don't I can't I don't follow that. And then you said candied and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now now that I'm like put, you know putting that that filter in my mind of like, okay, oh, now think about candied fruit fruits that mm-hmm. you've had before. And I'm like, oh yeah, okay, now I can now I can see that. And I mean no disrespect by this, but think about something like a fruit roll up too. You know, when you smell <laughs> when you smell that fruit, it's mm. been preserved in a way. And it adds a deeper dimension to the aroma. It's not the fresh version of the fruit, but mm-hmm. it's more of a preserved version of the fruit. And uh, it mm. that is something that kind of pops up to me as well. Mm-hmm. I can I can I can see that. I can definitely see that. Mm. All, right. All right. Well, let's um, give this a taste. Yeah. Here we go. Mmm. <laughs> it very easy drinking. Very sweet. Yep. And a super bright acidity on the finish. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is bizarre. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's um to me it's it's sweet, but it, it's not cloying. Like there's actually right. sake that some sake that by the numbers is less sweet than this, and I'll find it kind of really sticks to my palate and kind of will stick around. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I'll you know, time for the sweetness to go away. This this has a snap yeah. to it that I really appreciate. Yeah. And the texture and sweetness kind of reminds me of a German ice wine. Mm. I don't know if anyone's mm. ever said that before, but it's it's got a richness and a thickness on the palate. And the pronounced sweetness just makes me think of that. And I find that the aroma has a little bit more uh, umami to it than the taste. So hmm. the for me, there was a little bit more funkiness in the aroma. And the taste is really smooth and sweet mm. and almost like cidery it, it's really really good yeah cidery <laughs> cider yeah like a, a it's got this apple apple cider. sweetness to it yeah this is i have never tasted anything like this me neither this There's, is really yeah. unique people occasionally ask me because we don't get very much of this to the u.s i mean as mm. i Described, there's one starter tank that gets divided up among, I think it's 12 breweries now, and everybody makes a limited amount. So then, you know, beyond that, what we end up getting in the U.S. is is usually fairly fairly limited. People will sometimes ask me if they can't get this, like, well, what do you have that's similar? Or, or what, what do you know out there that's similar? And I'm like, well, not much. <laughs> yeah. Ah, so and this, this is I also... I also think this is going to qualify uh, in this household as crazy style. <laughs> Definitely going to be something I'm going to put in front of the missus uh, and see yeah. what she thinks. I think this will be appreciated. I think she might yeah. dig it. I, I know, oh, yeah, her. I so. I know what she likes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just surprised that I'm enjoying this as much as I am. It's mm. definitely not a John Puma sake. That is <laughs> uh, not the case here. But this is a very, very tasty and exciting. I like this. Yeah. So you mentioned that restaurants purchase this mm-hmm. uh what uh, the the food pairing that popped to my mind right away was like blue cheese like mm-hmm. i want blue cheese with this sweet appley deeply flavored sake uh, are, are there any other pairings from restaurants you've worked with that you know work really well with this super unique sake i mean i think blue cheese is an excellent example i mean mm-hmm. my example of shiokata a much more classic Japanese example is A, you don't find it very much, and B, it's a little hard. I 
You can't see right now. Tim's making a face in the thumbs down side. <laughs> uh, which I am mirroring, actually. Uh, is uh, not my I, kind of thing. I have to say, Jamie, you, before yeah. when you described Shiokari, you said it was squid parts. That's a little being a little generous. It is squid intestines and guts that are fermented. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I was trying to kind of, you know. He's, he's being transparent palatable. to our listeners, is, yes. is Tim, by letting them know the details of this wonderful dish that we think is uh, is is very culturally important to the people of Japan that we just don't enjoy. <laughs> so, yeah, blue cheese is, is kind of an excellent example. You know, there's very, very few places uh, in the U.S. that are thinking about sake and cheese like that. So I haven't mm. really seen that much as a pairing. I know that... Sakamai occasionally likes to do uh, things with cheese. That chef is Japanese chef likes to get really excited about cheese and sake pairings. But um, yeah, I mean, how how do people use this? I know that uh, some sushi places, for example, like it with a hikari mono, sort of the the cured silverfish, mm. that tend to be a little bit vinegary and things like that. They like to offset these kind of little bit sharper flavors with it. Some people have done it with with fatty tuna. Toro, things like that. Personally, I would love to have this with something like a like a blue cheese. Mm. If you're having it at home, that's you know one of my favorite things to have at home is a little bit of a great cheese and a, a sake pairing. Yeah, this has the acidity at the finish to cut the fattiness and the saltiness of a blue cheese. I think mm. it would be you know really really good. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds, sounds... One time when I, when I showed this at an event uh, when my company was sort of talking about these different shubo starters, um, and we served this both slightly chilled and warm and it's really really delicious warmed up actually it gets a little bit broader and sweeter normally i don't think of fruity things like this as something i would want to do warm but this one it, like everybody was kind of flipping out about it so i have one final question about the production of this sake because we mentioned they make the beginnings of the shubo the beginnings mm-hmm. of the bodaimoto at the buddhist temple then that's divided up and the brewery takes that acidic water back to the brewery they pitch the yeast they start to ferment this is such a unique and kind of like time capsule sake Mm -hmm. Uh, do you know of anything that they do at the brewery differently like do they brew it at room temperature only or any other insight into the production process to make this unique brew um, yeah, I, I think they definitely, so that the place where this is made is actually, they've got a lot of great kind of modern equipment there and it lets them really, you know, control what they want to do. But with this again, because they want this, as you said, to be kind of a time capsule, they're trying to mimic the conditions as much as they can from what they know of the time period. So, you know, less uh, intense temperature control, letting it uh, ferment a little bit warmer. It's really interesting talking to these folks and their level of historical knowledge is kind of crazy where so many sake breweries I've visited, you'll ask about what their philosophy of sake making is. And they'll say, we strive to make the best sake possible. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've heard that one before. Yeah. (laughs) And with these guys, they've got a very strong sense of, oh, this is what the history is like. We like to make these very intense modern styles. We like to make these kind of really cool throwback things. Like they've got a really good sense of exactly what they want to make. Well, Tim, I think, uh, I think we got a bit of an education today. Yes. I feel like I've been to the 15th century and back. This is amazing. <laughs> and you brought along some sake. Yes. Yeah. This is, you know, when we teach sake classes, Jamie, we say like, oh, in the past, in the Edo period, sake was a lot sweeter than it is today. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you just say, you say that and you're like, okay, whatever. It is totally different to sit down, pour a glass and drink it. 
mm-hmm. and be like, this is what it, this is what samurais were drinking. Blowing my mind right now. This is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so I'd love to mention kind of a couple places you can find this because as I mentioned, I mean, normally it is, you know, not the easiest thing to find necessarily. There's a company that imports it in New Mexico that we get it from. So we get a certain amount to the East Coast. There's a certain amount that goes to California. But, you know, lucky for uh, your listeners, normally this is something that restaurants are very excited to bring on. And just because of the past year, you know, normally it's snatched up pretty quickly, but it's hasn't moved uh, nearly as quickly as it does in the past. Next time you're in Japan, next time you're in Nara, (laughs) my recommendation for everybody is in the JR Nara station. uh, When you leave the set of ticket gates, if you go straight in that building, there's a department store. And literally, if you go straight, you go through the doors and pretty much immediately on your left, there's a very small little sake shop there. And they carry almost every kind of bodaimoto there. Um, you can recognize them by a very distinctive sticker at the top. It's a gold sticker that looks like a like a pot, like an urn. And that's yep. literally an illustration of the pot or the vessel that makes the starter um, that is then divided up for the breweries. And uh, for our listeners at home, that is actually on this bottle that we're uh, drinking from today. So if you see this on a bottle in a shop, we're going to have this in the show notes. This is definitely from that Bodaimoto project. Um, yeah, other people are making kind of variations on this style, but if you want something with the one we've talked about today, it's looking for that gold sticker at the top. And there's that great little shop in JR Nara Station, little sake shop. Uh, despite that, they carry a ton of great local Nara sake. You can find things there. If you're not in Nara or for some reason can't go to Japan, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to. <laughs> Couldn't imagine. <laughs> um, if here in, um, specifically in New York, I know Kuraichi, which is a sake shop in Brooklyn and Industry City in Sunset Park uh, is carrying some of it. And their sister restaurant right next door, Waku Waku, is very excited to be serving this as well right now. Um, so definitely, at least hopefully for the next few weeks, the next couple of months, uh, they'll still uh, have some and you can be able to try it. Fabulous. And if people want to learn more about you or your work with Skernik, what's the best way for people to learn about your sake portfolio and how to reach out to you? Definitely. So the easiest way to find out about all that, uh, we've got a great website, uh, just skernik.com. That's S-K-U-R-N-I-K.com. There's a blog on there called Skernik Unfiltered, and we've written a whole bunch of different kind of blog posts and articles about various topics within sake that definitely does feature uh, some things that we carry, but I also just like to talk about sake in general as much as possible. Had a whole lengthy post on the history of Nara and sake, which talks a lot about these things. And yeah, you can find out uh, also all of the sake that we carry are listed on there. Um, and we're adding, even in 2021, we're adding more and more new sake. Um, and I'm excited to, to bring things that have never come to the U.S. before should hopefully be coming to us later this year. I thought Skernik Unfiltered only talked about Nigori. <laughs> I, I thought we decided we weren't going to call it that. <laughs> Jamie, that was awesome. I learned so much. I feel like I've traveled back in time. I have Nara on the top of my bucket list for Japan now when I go back. Mm. It was fabulous having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Jamie, it was so great. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I also want to thank our listeners so much for tuning in. We really do hope that you're enjoying our show. If you would like to show your support for Sake Revolution, one way you can really help us out would be to take a couple of minutes and leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way for us to get the word out about our show. And when you're done writing your written review on Apple Podcasts, uh, please go and tell a friend and also subscribe. 
and then pester your friend a little bit and get them to subscribe too. Uh, this way, every week when we release a new episode, it will show up magically on your device of choice and you will not miss a single episode. And as always, to learn more about Bodai Moto or Jamie Graves or any of the topics we talked about in today's episode, be sure to visit our website, SakeRevolution.com, for all the detailed show notes. And for all of your sake questions that you need answered, we want to hear from you. Please reach out to us. The email address is feedback at SakeRevolution.com. So until next time, please remember to keep drinking sake and... Kampai! Yay! We got an episode out of that. We did it! Sweet! <laughs>